Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. When American rock pop band The Scissor Sisters came up with its name back in the early 2000s, it was derived from New York's nightlife and gay culture. After being signed with British label Polydor and releasing their debut album in 2004, the band went to number one in the United Kingdom. And not long after that, their name began to appear in Irish news too. But not because the band was gaining popularity in their neighbouring country. Unfortunately for the band, the moniker The Scissor Sisters was given to real-life sisters, Charlotte and Linda Mulhall, due to the nightmarish nature of their crime. You are listening to True Crime Britain. Join me, Rhiannon, each Wednesday as I tell the solved and unsolved stories of some of the most disturbing, mysterious and heartbreaking crimes committed throughout the United Kingdom. Welcome to this week's episode. The Mulholes were a family of eight who lived in Kilclare Gardens in Tallaght, South Dublin. The mother, Kathleen, grew up as a member of a settled Irish community family at Macroom Road, Coolock. But as soon as she married John Mulhall in the early 1970s, Kathleen turned her back on her traveller roots and acted as though her relatives no longer existed. Kathleen and John went on to have six children, three boys and three girls. The marriage, however, wasn't a happy one. Both Kathleen and John were heavy drinkers, and John allegedly physically abused his wife. While we don't know if the children were ever subject to abuse, the conditions at the family home were definitely not ideal. One of the couple's older children, Linda, 
who was born in 1975, grew up to be depressed and feeling hopeless for a large part of her life. Early on, Linda turned to alcohol and drugs to numb her feelings and to escape the situation at home. Linda eventually dropped out of school to start a family of her own. But after having four children with her boyfriend at the time, the relationship broke down. Shortly after, Linda moved on to another relationship, which unfortunately proved even more disastrous. This man, Wayne Kinsella, was horribly abusive, and not just towards Linda, but to her young children too. Wayne had always been a violent person. He used to get into fights at school and home constantly, even breaking his sister's jaw once. Wayne used to beat them constantly for no reason at all, other than the fact that he enjoyed torturing the children. Often with an electrical flex, and for the longest time, Linda did nothing to stop this from happening. She didn't call the police or social services. Linda may have tried to speak with Wayne but nothing ever changed. The abuse continued until one day, after one of their numerous arguments, Linda finally went to the police just to get back at Wayne. The subsequent investigation confirmed Linda's accusations and Wayne ended up serving seven years in prison for child cruelty. That sentence, however, would not be Wayne's only one. In May 1996, Wayne was convicted of the murder of retired auctioneer Thomas Foreman, who was killed in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin whilst visiting his wife's grave. After his eight-year sentence, Wayne was back on the streets, and before long, he proved his violent nature hadn't changed at all. In January 2011, Wayne went on to kill another man, 29-year-old Dubliner Adil Asali, because he believed Adil had been somehow involved in his brother Lee Kinsella's death five years earlier. This time, Wayne was jailed for life and his sister Donna stated at the time that Adil had nothing to do with the stabbing of her brother. So, the police investigation into child cruelty also revealed Linda's alcohol and drug abuse, which resulted in the children being taken into care by the social services. Linda herself has described the whole relationship with Wayne and losing her children as the lowest point in her life. Afterwards, she fell into an even deeper depression, and her substance abuse just got worse, leading to her becoming addicted to heroin. Throughout this time, Linda was unemployed, had no qualifications, and little interest in working. She did, however, eventually turn her life around a little bit. She did, however, eventually turn her life around a little bit and managed to stop using drugs as heavily as before. And the improvement was enough for Linda to get her children back. By 2005, they were living at the Mulhall family home in Kilclare Gardens together with Linda's younger sister, Charlotte. Charlotte was born in 1983. Like her sister, Charlotte had a long history of substance abuse and had been unemployed for most of her adulthood. But at times, when Charlotte was in need of extra cash, she would work as a prostitute in the Baguette Street area of Dublin. 
sometimes, alongside her mother Kathleen, who was said to have introduced her daughter to the game. By the age of 21, Charlotte was already a familiar face to Gardy, being convicted of a number of minor offences. She would often move in and out of the family home, depending on her financial situation. But in 2005, Charlotte was once again back in Kilclare Gardens. The situation at the Mulhall home was overall a very messy one. As you might remember, Kathleen and John's relationship was not going well. Kathleen was not happy with her husband, but she was too scared to leave him. So instead, she started an affair in the hopes of getting some happiness in her life. The man Kathleen began to see in 2002 was a 35-year-old Kenyan refugee named Farah Sweller Noor. Farah had arrived in Ireland seven years earlier, claiming to be a Somali called Shalila Salim, whose family had been killed during the Somali Civil War. However, a further investigation eventually revealed the truth. Farah's family was still very much alive, and he was, in fact, a Kenyan national of Somalian ethnicity. So naturally, Farah was ordered to be deported, but he managed to prevent that from happening by becoming the father of an Irish-born child. He was then granted Irish citizenship in March 1999. The thing is, that no matter how unhappy Kathleen was with her husband, the relationship with Farah was not in any way better. If anything, it was worse. Farah already had several convictions for abusive behaviour and assault, and had three children with three different women, all of whom he had raped. But despite facing numerous charges, including a sexual assault in which a knife was found at the scene. Farah, unbelievably, never served any time in prison. He was free to meet Kathleen in a nightclub in 2002 and soon after move in with her in the family home at Kilclare Gardens. Needless to say, John was not happy at all at having his wife's boyfriend under his roof, so he took some of the children and moved out. For around a year, John lived in various apartments in Dublin before returning to the family home after Kathleen and Farah relocated to Cork, around two and a half hours away from Kilclare Gardens. The couple eventually moved back to Dublin where Kathleen rented a house in Richmond Cottages. Despite Farah constantly abusing her, Kathleen continued the relationship, building up the pressure, until one day it finally exploded with fatal consequences. On the morning of the 20th of March 2005, Linda was lounging around the family home when Charlotte asked her if she would like to go to a party with her. Charlotte was about to turn 22 the following day and she thought, why not start the celebrations early? Linda, however, had only just gotten her children back and she really went out, as it was too difficult to find a babysitter. So Linda initially declined Charlotte's offer. But Charlotte was not giving up that easily. Linda then asked if she could bring one of her sons along. 
but the look her sister gave her made it clear that that wasn't an option. Charlotte was planning to get drunk or high, or both, and that wasn't something that children should witness. Just when Linda was about to repeat that she couldn't go and she had to stay home, the sister's father, John, walked into the room. No matter the difficulties with his wife, John seemed to care for his children and offered to mind his daughter's kids so that Linda could unwind and relax and enjoy a night with her sister. Linda didn't need any more persuasion. She thanked her father and followed Charlotte upstairs to get ready. While changing their clothes and getting their makeup done, the sisters drank vodka and coke before heading out an hour later. Linda and Charlotte caught the number 77 bus into Dublin city centre, where the streets were filled with people following St. Patrick's Day festivities. Among them were Kathleen and Farah, who had been partying for the last three days without a break. So when Linda and Charlotte arrived at the centre, they arranged to meet with their mother and her boyfriend. But instead of going to a pub or a bar to have a drink, Farah went to a shop to buy a bottle of vodka and coke, and the group drank as they walked around the city. Any other day, they would have gotten into trouble with Gardy, but that Sunday, the streets were full of people drinking anyway, so they just blended in with the crowds. But Linda felt like alcohol wasn't enough for her to unwind. She needed drugs. So as they wandered towards the boardwalk, which overlooks the River Liffey, and had become a hangout for the homeless, drug addicts and winos, Linda pulled out a bag of ecstasy. She passed one of the tablets to Charlotte, which Kathleen noticed. But instead of getting angry with her daughters for using illegal drugs, Kathleen asked for one of the tiny white pills herself. Farah was the only one in the group who didn't want to get high, saying that he wasn't in the mood. It didn't take long for Linda and Charlotte to become giggly and eventually noticeably euphoric. However, the ecstasy seemed to have a very little effect on Kathleen. Meanwhile, Farah continued to drink, and the drunker he got, the worse he behaved. What started as nasty comments here and there became a full-on argument with Kathleen. Linda could tell that Farah wasn't happy, but she found it extremely hard to understand what the row was about. Due to Farah's strong Kenyan accent, Linda had always had difficulty speaking with her mother's boyfriend. But that day, she didn't even really want to understand what was going on. Linda was feeling great thanks to the pills, and so she began listening to music on her phone and just ignored the argument. However, the group eventually had to move on as Kathleen and Farah's fight was getting out of hand and gaining way too much attention. Having no other place to go, the group decided to go to the flat that Kathleen shared with Farah. On their way there, the couple continued to argue in raised voices. At this point, Farah was so drunk he had difficulties walking in a straight line and speaking without slurring his words. Then, the group happened to walk past a young Chinese boy and Farah kind of lost it for a moment. Back in 1997, he had raped a mentally disabled 16-year-old Chinese girl who later gave birth to a son whom Farah had never met for obvious reasons. Still, 
he knew he had a half-Chinese son. And despite the fact that the boy he now saw in front of him was no older than five, Farah grabbed the boy by the shoulder and said to Kathleen, quote, Kathy, this is my son. This is my son. Meanwhile, the boy screamed and cried out for help, unable to get away from this drunken stranger who was now crying and hugging him. Farah's behaviour alone was causing a massive scene in the middle of Dublin city centre. And it only got worse when Kathleen started shouting at her boyfriend, quote, That's not your son, you bleeding idiot. But it wasn't until Linda intervened and dragged Farah off that the little boy managed to run away. The group then continued their walk as if nothing had happened. On the way, they encountered Farah's old co-worker from the fishing port of Kismayu, Mohammed Ali Abu Bakar, and a woman named Deirdre Highland. Despite being extremely drunk, Farah recognised his friend and greeted Mohammed with some slurred words. Mohammed talked briefly with Kathleen, who introduced her daughter to him, before urging Farah to go home and sleep. But when the group arrived at the flat at about 6.30pm that evening, they just carried on drinking and taking drugs. Charlotte put a CD on before going to the kitchen with Kathleen to prepare some drinks. It was at that point that things began to spiral out of control. Apparently, Kathleen made a decision to crush an ecstasy pill and spike Farah's drink with it as she wanted him to feel better. What Kathleen seemed to forget was the fact that Her boyfriend was a violent man with a history of sexual abuse. So instead of making him jolly, the pills had a disturbing effect on Farah. Ecstasy can increase sexual desire, and while that might not sound bad for some individuals, in the case of a sexual predator, you can only imagine the consequences. Kathleen and Farah's apartment wasn't big and there were only a few places to sit which resulted in Linda sitting on Charlotte's lap on the sofa next to their mother's boyfriend. As time passed, Farah became more and more flirtatious and touchy with Linda. He pulled her close to him and placed his arms around her waist. And while Linda was drunk, she was sober enough to understand that what Farah was doing was not okay. Still, knowing their mother's boyfriend's aggressive nature, Linda didn't want to cause a scene. So instead of saying anything, she just tried to pull away, but Farah wouldn't let her go. Linda later described the situation saying, It didn't feel right. He pulled me closer to him, sort of touching on Charlie's lap and his knee. His arm went from my back to my shoulder, and he pulled me close to him. He said something in my ear. I didn't understand him, but I knew it was dirty. It was something he should not have said to me. It caused me to shiver. While Linda didn't say anything, Charlotte, of course, saw what was happening and eventually she thought she needed to intervene. But it was like Charlotte was talking to a wall. She told Farah to get his hands off his sister, but he was too drunk and stoned to pay any attention or even care what she was saying. Instead, Farah pulled Linda even closer and again whispered into her ear, 
call in Linda, a creature of the night, and said that she was the spitting image of her mother. That was enough for Linda, who then tried to get up and told Farah to stop touching her. She then asked Kathleen what Farah meant by saying she and him were creatures of the night, as Linda knew it was something that Farah said to her mother. But instead of getting an explanation, Kathleen began shouting at Farah, asking what he had meant by saying that to her daughter. At this point, Charlotte became hysterical and joined her mother, shouting and screaming at Farah, asking what he was doing to her sister. But despite the two women shouting at him, Farah still wouldn't let go of Linda. It was like Charlotte and Kathleen didn't even exist to him. Linda tried to push her mother's hands from her waist, while Farah said to Kathleen, something along the lines, that Farah would sleep with her daughter as quickly as he would look at her. Frustrated that Farah was not listening to them, Charlotte got up and continued shouting at him. Quote, Get your hands off her. She is nothing like me, ma. Get your hand off Linda. But Farah seemed to enjoy the situation, and he wasn't going to allow himself to be bossed around by women. To him, women were objects that he could use as he pleased. So when Kathleen tried to help her daughter, Farah pushed her away and drew his finger across his throat. While it's possible that Farah may only have been fooling around and didn't actually mean the sign as a threat, the reality was that he had a history of violence towards women and he had even broken Kathleen's ribs once during a fight. That alone made Linda and Charlotte scared of what could happen if the situation continued to escalate. They already despised this man for breaking up their family. They could not let Farah hurt their mother. Now, only those in that apartment at the time know for sure what happened next. But allegedly, an argument between Kathleen and Farah got so bad that she eventually pleaded with her daughters to kill her boyfriend, as Charlotte explained. Quote, Me ma just kept saying to me and Linda, please kill him or he is going to kill me. She just kept going on about it. Me ma gave me a knife and she gave Linda a hammer. I don't know where she got them. Holding the Stanley knife in her hand, Charlotte once again warned Farah to let her sister go. But he didn't react at all. Charlotte then struck Farah across his throat. The blade penetrated an artery, causing Farah to stumble backwards and fall back onto a bedroom floor, hitting his head on the bunk bed. Still, he tried to get back up, mumbling his girlfriend's name. Panicking that Farah could still hurt her mother or sister after what Charlotte had just done to him, Linda took the hammer and hit him on the head a number of times. At this point, Farah was no threat to anyone anymore. But instead of calling the authorities, both Linda and Charlotte continued the attack, hitting and stabbing Farah while he lay on the ground. Charlotte then picked up another knife, a bread knife, and plunged it into Farah's torso again and again, puncturing both of his lungs and damaging his kidneys and liver. Meanwhile, Linda repeatedly struck Farah's head with a hammer. And all this time, 
Kathleen allegedly remained in the living room, watching TV and drinking, as if nothing was happening. Once Charlotte and Linda were done, Farah had at least 27 stab wounds all over his body. The first ones alone had been enough to kill him. So now, realising what they had done, the panic started to kick in and the girls needed to decide what they were going to do next. Charlotte told Kathleen her boyfriend was dead, who then started screaming, quote, Get him out! Get him out! According to Charlotte's later statement, it was her mother who came up with the idea to dismember Farah's body. Although Linda claims that Charlotte was the one who said, quote, We will chop him up. But no matter whose idea it was, the result was the same. Farah's body was taken into the tiny bathroom where Linda had to position herself in the shower while Charlotte sat on the toilet seat to have enough room to perform the gruesome task. While Kathleen sat in the kitchen smoking continuously, her daughters used the Stanley knife, hammer and a bread knife to dismember Farah's body, as Linda explained. Quote, Charlie cut into his arms with a knife. She got tired. I then used the hammer and I hit his legs a number of times. It took us a few hours to do it. Me and Charlie took turns cutting him and breaking the bones. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The tools Linda and Charlotte had were not really suitable for what they were about to do, but the two were determined to finish what they had started. Although it took forever for Charlotte to cut through the cartilage and bone with the knives, she also had boundless energy from the ecstasy. So she kept going until it just wasn't physically possible anymore. The amount of blood that was flowing on the floor was unimaginable. A man of Farah's size and weight usually has around 5.6 litres of blood circulating in their body. The towels that Charlotte and Linda were placing on the wounds had little to no effect. Before long, the little bathroom resembled a scene from a horror movie or a slaughterhouse, and a metallic smell filled the air. That smell, Linda said, she would never forget. There was nothing methodical in the way the sisters dismembered Farah's body. 
they simply cut through wherever they could, leaving behind a mutilated pile of flesh. At some point, Linda decided to remove Farah's penis, thinking she was avenging the fact that this man had allegedly at least once raped her mother. In total, it took Charlotte and Linda five hours to dismember Farah's body into eight separate pieces. The man's torso was cut in half, revealing his internal organs. The lower part of the torso still had the hip joints fully intact, and the lower legs were left with the feet attached. Farah's arms were broken, and then lastly, the sister removed the head. Linda and Charlotte later admitted that they took turns to cut through Farah's neck, as the task was too terrifying for one person alone. Linda began to feel some remorse at this point, and was not able to look at her mother's boyfriend's face while cutting and hammering. The look on Farah's lifeless face, the pure terror, was too much to handle. And in the end, Linda placed a towel over the man's head so that she was able to finish the beheading. When the Mulhall sisters were finally done with Farah's body, it was around 11.30pm, not really knowing what to do next and being fully panic-stricken. Linda took her phone and she called her father. During the two-minute call, she explained to John what had happened. After the call, it took John ten minutes before he phoned his estranged wife as he tried to comprehend what he had just been told. He was trying to find out if his daughter was just joking around or had lost her mind because of the drugs. But once he spoke with Kathleen, there was no question left if Farah Swellanor really was dead or not. Based on the phone records, we know that John spoke with Kathleen for around two minutes and then he called her again just before midnight. Afterwards, John allegedly took his car and drove into the city, arriving at Kathleen and Farah's flat at around 1.30am. To John's relief, once he stepped into the apartment, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. There was no blood, no body in sight, and Linda and Charlotte looked totally normal. John then asked where Farah was, likely expecting him to be out, and all Linda had told him was just a bad joke. But Linda then told her father that his body was in the bedroom. Unsure of what he was about to find, John opened the door and looked into the room. But he didn't see anything. Confused, John looked at his daughters, who then told him to look again. At this point, Linda revealed that they had dismembered the body. So when John took another look, he noticed a full black bin liner in the corner, and he immediately felt nauseous. Still, John had to see it with his own eyes to believe it so he glanced into the bag, and immediately after that, John allegedly ran outside, throwing up as he went. At this point, at this point, he didn't want to have anything to do with his wife and daughters anymore, no matter how much he cared about Linda and Charlotte. Killing and dismembering a man was just too much. At this point, it's important to note that the sisters only spoke about their father's visit to the flat once, and Kathleen never mentioned it at all. 
John has denied having any involvement. So there is a possibility that in reality, things could have gone differently. But nevertheless, not receiving any help from their father only deepened the panic. It also didn't help that the effects of alcohol and ecstasy were now starting to wear off. Still, the sisters knew what they had to do, as Linda later recalled. Charlotte put the main parts of the body into the sports bags, but then she put the legs into black plastic bags, but I let the legs come out. Farah's head was also placed into a plastic bag and then into a suitcase. That case was then left behind in the back garden while the sisters headed out to dispose of the other body parts. It was a conscious decision not to throw the head in with the rest of the body. Linda thought that the guardie would have a hard time identifying the body without it. But while that may have been seen as a smart move, the sisters made a big mistake by dumping the other body parts into the Royal Canal. Linda and Charlotte didn't have a car, so the canal, which was located around a five-minute walk from Richmond Cottages, seemed like the best option. But dumping a body so close to the crime scene was risky. Linda's later statements indicated that Kathleen walked to the canal with her daughters, but it was Linda and Charlotte who carried the bags. They made the trip in the darkness several times, hoping that nobody saw them, and panicking whether or not police could identify Farah. Only by the scar on his arm. In any case, it was too late to change the plan now. Back at the flat, Linda and Charlotte faced the horrifying amount of blood and pieces of flesh that they now had to clean up. The blood was already soaked into the carpets and lino. It took the sisters all night and numerous buckets of water and cleaning agents to get the apartment as spotless as they could. At this point, at around 11am, Linda and Charlotte were exhausted but they still needed to get rid of Farah's head. So, the sisters took the bag with the grisly contents with them and headed out. But instead of taking care of the disposal immediately, Linda and Charlotte walked around the city with a head in a bag, as if they were just having a regular morning. First, they walked into a supermarket on Summerhill Parade where they bought salad rolls to satisfy their growing hunger. Then, the sisters caught a bus from the city centre and travelled to the square shopping centre in Talat where they proceeded to window shop. But while Linda and Charlotte seemed calm from the outside, inside, their minds were in turmoil. Even though Linda's eyes stared at the clothes in the windows, the only thing that she could see was Farah's face, and the only thing she heard was the man's last word, Katie. Linda played the whole ordeal out in her head again and again, trying to understand the situation she was in. She had been involved in not just killing a person, but also dismembering their body. Charlotte was also terrified, but perhaps even more about what was going to happen to her, rather than what they had done to Farah. Their actions at this point were a telltale sign of a state of denial. Linda and Charlotte were doing these everyday things, in an effort to feel normal.
but they couldn't carry a severed head around forever. So, after a while, Linda and Charlotte walked to the Sean Walsh Memorial Park in Tallaght, where they planned to bury the final piece of their mother's boyfriend. It took a long time for the sisters to decide on the exact location. They walked around for ages, before finally digging a hole in the ground with a knife, just a few feet away from a park bench. According to Linda's later statement, Kathleen had accompanied them to the park, and she was the one who threw the knives and hammer into one of the lakes. Afterwards, the trio returned home, hoping that they had just managed to get away with murder. But the thing is, Farah's death continued to haunt Linda and Charlotte. While Charlotte had appeared headstrong throughout the whole incident, she soon began to break down. Just days after the brutal slaughter, Charlotte couldn't help but to drunkenly confess what they had done to her other sister, Marie. Marie, however, didn't believe a word Charlotte was saying at first. After all, Charlotte was known to tell wild stories, especially when she was drunk or high on drugs. The version of the events that Charlotte shared with Marie were different at some points as she told it. For example, she said, that she and Kathleen had gone out for a moment, and upon their return, they found Farah trying to rape Linda. Though Charlotte did admit that she was the one who hit Farah first. But she also left out many other details about the murder. Marie later gave a statement, saying, quote, she didn't describe the items used to hit Farah, nor did I inquire. Charlotte told me that they then cut Farah Nor into two halves and buried him either side of the canal. She did not identify the canal, and nor did I ask her. I honestly did not believe her. Charlotte was very upset at this stage and I was shocked, to put it mildly, by the story that she told me, even though I did not believe her. That night, Marie went to sleep, thinking nothing more of Charlotte's disturbing story. But it didn't take long for her to learn that her sister wasn't actually lying. On the 21st of March, the day after the killing took place, Farah's body parts began to float to the surface of the canal. The location Linda and Charlotte had chosen for disposal was easily seen by people walking by. Margaret Gannon was one of the people who noticed a black plastic bag wrapped in brown tape floating in the water that day. On Tuesday, Margaret saw the same bag again, and this time she thought it looked a little bit like a body without a head. Still, Margaret brushed it off, thinking that it was just her imagination playing tricks. In the following days, people began to notice other body parts in the canal, including an arm but thought they simply belonged to a broken mannequin. After all, the body parts had already turned a marbled white colour, making them look artificial. On March the 30th, a man named Peter alerted Crime Stoppers that while he was out walking beside the canal, he had spotted two arms, a hand and two lower legs. Shortly after, 
at around 6.30pm that same evening. James O'Connor noticed a group of teenagers staring at the water at Clark's Bridge. The youths told James that there was a dummy in the water, who then looked down out of curiosity. Indeed, he saw a strange but, at the same time, familiar shape under the water. Eventually, James was able to tell that he was actually looking at a human torso, an arm and a leg. Terrified, James took his phone and dialed 999. Bada sub divers were eventually able to retrieve most of the body parts from the canal. At this point, the media had already heard about the gruesome discovery. Linda and Charlotte's worst fears were realised as they watched the evening news. As Marie heard the news, she began to wonder if Charlotte had been telling the truth after all. Marie spoke about the discovery with their father, but didn't mention what Charlotte had told her some days earlier. But at this point, John appeared as if he didn't know anything at all about the murdered man. The post-mortem revealed that Farah had died from the 27 stab wounds, and based on the lack of defensive wounds, it was believed that he had either been taken by surprise or he knew his attacker. The investigators, of course, had no idea who this person was. The head was missing, and the victim's fingerprints yielded no information. It was initially thought that perhaps the murder was somehow linked to another similar case that took place four years earlier in 2001. The torso of an unidentified body was found in the River Thames, and while the case remains unsolved, it was believed the killing was ritualistic. The way Farah's body had been dismembered, and the fact his head and penis were missing, made the investigators think that perhaps some ritual had been the motive for the murder. But before anything else, the police needed to identify the victim. So they published photographs of the clothes that were found with the body parts in the hopes that someone would recognise them. And someone did. The very same man that saw Farah on the same day he was brutally murdered. Mohammed Ali Abi Bakar On Monday the 9th of May, Mohammed read an article in the Street Journal about the dismembered remains of a black male that had been found in the Royal Canal. But it wasn't really the article itself that caught Mohammed's attention. Instead, it was the image of a white island football jersey. Mohammed remembered very well that he had seen Farah Noor wearing the same type of shirt during the St. Patrick's weekend celebrations. On that day, Mohammed had found it curious that Farah was wearing something so Irish, considering he was from Kenya. So now, Mohammed read through the article, paying more attention to its content. And the more he read, the more concerned he became. Still, Mohammed thought to himself, that surely Kathleen would have reported Farah missing if something really had happened to him. So he didn't panic too much. But as Mohammed then tried to call Farah to check on him, the line was disconnected. Furthermore, people in the Somali community in Dublin 
hadn't heard from Farah for some time. And this was enough to convince Mohammed that it was necessary for him to speak with the authorities. Mohammed gave Gadi a very detailed description of the last time he saw Farah, including the t-shirt he was wearing and the women he was with. Although he remembered Kathleen as Catherine, but that detail didn't matter much. Shortly after, the Gadi knew all about Farah's troubled past and the fact he had children. The investigators tracked down a woman who Farah had previously dated and asked for a DNA sample from her son. While waiting for the test results, Gadi became deeply interested in Kathleen and Farah's relationship. They knew Kathleen had been a repeated victim of domestic abuse and she had moved out of the flat that she shared with Farah shortly after he disappeared. Could it be that after years of abuse, Kathleen had struck back? But then, on the 11th of July, the incident room was contacted by the last two people the detectives could ever have guessed to do so. John Mulhall Jr and his brother James, who were both, at that time, in Wheatfield Prison. Linda and Charlotte's brothers wanted to meet with the members of the investigation team in private, saying they had all the information Gardy needed to solve the crime. John Jr. and James told the detectives that the victim was their mother's boyfriend, Farah, and he had been killed at a flat at Richmond Cottages. Apparently, Kathleen had told her sons all about the slaughtering of her boyfriend, including the fact that Linda and Charlotte had been responsible for killing Farah. John Jr. and James had heard about Gardy being interested in their mother and found it disrespectful that their sisters did nothing to help Kathleen in the situation. Instead, it seemed that Linda and Charlotte were hoping their mother was going to be blamed for everything. Just a few days after the informal interview of the two Mulhall brothers, on the 15th of July, DNA test results came back, confirming the body parts indeed did belong to Farah. Further tests also confirmed that his DNA matched the tiny blood samples found at the flat. Less than a month later, on the 3rd of August, Linda, Charlotte, Kathleen and John Mulhall Sr. were arrested. However, They were released 12 hours later due to lack of evidence and everyone denying having anything to do with the killing. By this point, Linda wasn't doing very well at all. She barely slept. She was drinking and taking drugs all the time and even tried to commit suicide after being released. In the end, Linda couldn't handle the guilt, and in August of 2005, she gave a voluntary statement to Gardy, telling them every single detail about what went down on that terrible night five months earlier. Following the very emotional confession, Gardy arrested Charlotte, who tried to convince the detectives that her sister was lying and Kathleen was actually behind all of it. However, as soon as she understood that Linda's version of events was so detailed and so convincing that there was no room for any other explanation, Charlotte changed her mind 
and agreed her sister was telling the truth. By this point, Kathleen had cut off contact with both of her daughters and eventually fled the country in September 2005. She wasn't located until January 2008, when Gardy found out she was living in England. Linda and Charlotte Mulhall's trial took place in October 2006. Both of them pled not guilty to the murder of Farah Noor in the Central Criminal Court. In Linda's case, the jury agreed that she had not committed murder, but she did commit manslaughter caused by provocation. She was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Charlotte, however, was convicted of murder and given the mandatory life sentence. Their mother eventually returned to Ireland voluntarily in February 2008. Kathleen pled guilty to helping her daughters clean up the crime scene. She was sentenced to five years in prison in May 2009. A month earlier, in April 2009, Linda told her fellow inmates that she had gone back to the park to dig up Farah's head. Linda claimed that she then smashed the head into bits with a hammer before dumping the pieces in rubbish bins throughout Phoenix Park. There is no way of confirming if Linda's story was true or not, but it would explain why Farah's head was never found. Linda Mulhall was eventually released from prison in 2018 after serving her time with credit for good behaviour. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and thank you for your kind messages of support, feedback, positive reviews and of course your patience. I really do appreciate it and I love reading what you have to say. For transcripts, photos, credits and resources relating to today's episode, please visit www.truecrimebritain.com. If you'd like to access things like ad-free, early release and bonus episodes, I'd love you to consider supporting the show by joining me on Patreon, where you could get access to all that and even more rewards from just £1 a month. You can join now by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimebritain or see the episode description. Don't forget, you can also like, follow and or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a future episode. There are some big cases coming up and I wouldn't want you to miss out. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube for regular case updates. Just search for True Crime Britain. If you're already supporting me on Patreon, you can find next week's episode already there waiting for you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week and please stay safe. If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.